if you would, to Acts chapter 7, Bible. We just got a message in song. And I would ask you today, who is your hope? Can you answer that question? Who is your hope? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're trusting in any other hope, it is sinking sand. That's just the truth. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. And that message we heard in song is just as consistent with scriptural teaching as So I prepare messages to hear a song like that, to proclaim the truth of the gospel in song. If you were able to say that with the truth of those songs, to have that faith in your heart would be the difference between an eternity in the lake of fire and an eternity with God forever. I hope you can say that. My hope is in Jesus. Hope is a forward-looking thing. Faith is trust and rest. Hope is very much like faith. But faith is looking at what is real and what is true. Hope is what is looking, it's looking at the future in light of that truth. And one of the Statements in those in that song was dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's our only hope that we would be dressed in his righteousness and stand before him. Our own righteousnesses, our own acts, our own deeds are like filthy rags. And it's really only through the blood and the righteousness of Christ that anyone will be saved. So I hope as you heard the message of the gospel in song that really did hear it. And it would be enough to just stop the service there. We're not going to, but that's a message that all of us need to hear. And I hope that you can say, yes, he is my hope too. And if he is, there's joy today as you worship the Lord. I hope Stephen's hope was in Christ and the Lord gave him Uh, Even in the scene that we're going to read here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was able to see a vision of the risen Christ. And we see that at the end of the chapter, even as he's about to be stoned as a martyr. Just leading up to chapter 7 here, the priest is going to ask, are these things so? To get a little context, if you haven't been with us, we've been looking at the witness of Stephen, the ministry of Stephen in chapter 6. We saw his miraculous ministry, his verbal ministry, his preaching, the wisdom and the spirit that God was granting to him to preach and teach the truth. But then there were these rumors that were spread about him and these false 
testimonies about him that he is, as verse 13 puts it, incessantly speaking against the holy place and the law. This holy place refers to the temple there at Jerusalem. Verse 14, these false witnesses said, we say we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And so there have been charges leveled against Stephen, serious charges. If we go back up to verse 11, he is charged with, or these rumors that were spread about him were that he had said blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and those would be capital charges. And by that mean, it means that he could be put to death. And so this is a man now who's on trial for his life. And when the high priest asked the question, are these things so, now Stephen has an opportunity to defend himself. And uh, this is a wonderful chapter. Uh, I believe we need to take a little bit of time with it, so I don't anticipate getting all the way through it today in terms of teaching, but at least let's read through it and see what God has revealed about this scene here as Stephen witnesses to the truth. So starting in verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which now you are living, which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Shechem had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. 
And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? The one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disown, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, 
you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previous who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. It is a wonderful thing to see someone who speaks the truth in the face of opposition. And God gives them grace to testify even to the very moment of their death. Is testifying there at the end of the chapter through his prayers, certainly to the fact that the Lord Jesus hears prayers. And someone has said that if it wasn't for the prayer in verse 60, the church would not have had Saul. God mercifully dealt with Saul, Paul. And of course, he was witness to the scene. I believe that's in part why we have the record of what is said here in chapter 7. And I don't know if you've ever read or studied through this chapter, but I know because it's historical in nature and sometimes we can get focused in on this or that particular element of whatever the person is saying that we miss the big picture. In fact, it's one of my goals that we won't miss the big picture of what's being said here. This is obviously a lesson in Israel's history. Stephen obviously knew the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham as he begins uh, in verse 2 to talk about the God of glory appearing to Abraham. And if you were to go through this chapter, there's, of course, these introductory statements, the high priest's statement, and then Stephen's request for them to hear. But then as Stephen proceeds with his speech, with his defense, I'm just going to give you a, a verbal outline to kind of pin our thoughts on as we move forward. From verse 2 and down through verse 8, you have God's promises and his covenant relationship to Abraham and the patriarchs. So God's promises and covenant relationship to Abraham and the patriarchs. You might add the point, which we'll look at as we go through that, on Abraham's journeys, because Abraham is not in the same place. He's recorded to be in a number of places as Stephen describes it, and that, I believe, is purposeful. Stephen's got some points that he is making to 
the Sanhedrin as he defends himself about the nature of God and his relation to his people. So number one, God's promises and covenant relationship to Abraham. And then number two, you can see that the story turns to Joseph in verse nine. Patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And it's Joseph that is the focus down through verse 14. You remember at the end of Joseph's life, Jacob came down into Egypt. Jacob learned that Joseph was alive. But it goes even to the point in verse 16 to describe the burial of the patriarchs. The burial not in Egypt, but the burial in the promised land. And so there's certainly a focus on Joseph and his brothers, the patriarchs. That goes down through verse 16, but then starting in verse 17, there's a transition to the time, which we would call the time of the Exodus, but it focuses in and zeroes in on Moses. So from verse 17 and down through verse verse 43, while we might argue about the end of that section, it focuses on God's calling of Moses and his gifting of his servant Moses as ruler and deliverer. So God's calling and gifting of his servant Moses as ruler and deliverer. That goes down through verse 43. Verse 44, remember Stephen is on trial in part for the things that he spoke about the temple. Remember in the Old Testament, the temple was a moving temple. It's The tabernacle, first of all, it's called the tabernacle of testimony in verse 44 because the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant was in the tabernacle. That's why it's called that. But that's the focus, starting in verse 44. And then verse 45 describes where the ark went into the land along with Joshua. And David desired to build a house for the God of Jacob, but Solomon was the one who eventually built the temple. And of course, they had a rebuilt temple in the days that Stephen is speaking, but that temple is the focus. But then Stephen draws attention to, in verses 48 through 50, and this is the point, I believe, of the section, that the temple is inadequate to house the Most High God. So the complete inadequacy of the temple to house the Most High God. He's answering that charge that is being leveled against him about speaking evil of this set of buildings that have become very precious, even to the point of idolatry on the part of the people of Stephen's day. And then verses 51 through 53, you can see he turns up the heat, so to speak, by his rebuke of the leaders as he describes the persistent rebellion of the nation of Israel throughout its history, culminating in the crucifixion of the Messiah, or as he calls him, the righteous one. So this is something that Israel, and you can even see it in his, in his speech, that he's talking about their rebellion against the leaders that God had given to them throughout their history. Moses is one, even Joseph, you could say, is one. But I say culminating in the end here of Stephen's speech because 
verse 52, it says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So he's including a whole series of prophets. If Moses was the first, and you go all the way to the end, to the last prophet of the Old Testament, you have quite a few prophets. And he asked the question, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Could they answer that question with any name? And what did they do? They announced the coming of the righteous one, verse 52. And then he says, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he is charging them with murder. Murder actually of the Messiah himself, which Peter had before. This is a repetition of that same confrontation that Peter had more than once, the apostles had. Now Stephen is again before the very body of people who led the rebellion against Jesus Christ, and he's charging them with murder and betrayal. And we'll consider that rebellion as he describes it. But then obviously, following that charge, there's anger. It says they're cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. And somebody gets very angry and just grits their teeth and isn't saying anything, but you can tell that the anger is so built up inside of them. There's visible effects, and then their response is delayed as you see Stephen seeing a vision of the risen and resurrected Christ. So there's a sense in which the testimony to the resurrection here, while it isn't explicit in Stephen's sermon, God draws attention to the risen Christ as Christ the Son of Man, is unveiled to Stephen's sight from heaven itself, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he's standing. He's not seated. There's something about that, that here where this man is testifying to the Sanhedrin, preaching Christ to them, drawing attention to their sin against Christ, that Christ himself would be standing in honor of the one who's testifying to him and also as a means by which he can further testify to the Son of Man. What a sight. But they won't have it. And so verse 57 down through verse 60 is the stoning of Stephen, but not without his dying prayers which are further testimony to his faith and actually forward-moving in terms of the mission. This actually advances the mission. This event advances the mission of Christ's disciples in an unusual way because in the next chapter, what's going to happen is more persecution comes and the disciples are scattered. And as they're scattered, what happens? Since they go everywhere preaching the word, chapter 8 and verse 4. So what is happening here is God is doing something through the witness of Stephen as he confronts the Sanhedrin, but the mission is being advanced. So I'm trying to say, I realize we could just focus on what was just said, and that's obviously a, the, the big point, the message, but I think there's things in the details in Stephen's message here that are worth our observation, investigation, and I, I trust some precious truths for us that although Stephen is on trial for his life, some of the things that he says have implications for us as he talks about the God of glory. 
So let's go back to his first uh, section here as he talks about the life of Abraham, God's promises, and uh, his covenant with Abraham. Before he begins with that, there's this question, which of course sets the scene. Are these things so? What are the charges? We already talked about the fact that these charges are serious, they're capital charges. If these things are true, that Stephen actually is speaking against God or speaking against Moses, this was no small thing. But notice Stephen's response is a brotherly response. This is his address to his countrymen. He refers to them in verse 2, in spite of the way that he's been treated by them as brethren and even fathers. He's showing respect for the leaders of Israel that are putting him on trial. And this is a part of, I think we could say, what God was granting grace for Stephen to do was for him to respond in a gracious and spirit-filled way to his accusers. Stephen is chosen as a deacon because he was, according to their qualifications, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Later, it's said of him that he was full of grace and power. And of course, as he spoke, the Spirit was speaking through him in such a way they couldn't resist the wisdom. Well, this is just a further exhibition, you could say, of the Spirit ministering through Stephen. In fact, in this speech, remember this speech, this whole speech is recorded for us. This is the Word of God. So God is working through Stephen to testify to these who have him on trial. And so as we look at this, this is a wonderful spirit-filled defense of the truth, a spirit-filled defense of the faith. And it begins with Abraham. Look at verse 2, middle of the verse, or early part of the verse, where he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And it describes Abraham's movement from Mesopotamia to Haran. And then uh, referencing there in Haran, according to God's direction, these are his journeys that he is taking on the basis of faith. And beyond his own travels, there's also a description in verses 6 and 7 of his descendants being in a foreign land. So while Abraham did spend time in the promised land, much of his life is spent outside. We know he went into Egypt. If you follow even the story of Genesis, Abraham was in a lot of different places. And as you look at Stephen's defense here, one of the things we have to remember is that he is talking about the Lord, and he's talking about the Lord's relationship to his people geographically. The Jews recognized, of course, that God had chosen Jerusalem, that it was the city of the great king, that God had specified the location of the temple. The Jews were supposed to worship at the temple. That was the place where they were not to build high places or worship elsewhere. But what had happened 
And what was happening, even in the time of the New Testament, as Stephen is on trial, is there was such a focus on God and his presence there at Jerusalem that almost there's, it's, it's almost impossible to think that God could work in anywhere else or be with people anywhere else in the world. This is, this is where it's at. And so Stephen is really showing through the speech in part that God has been at work in many geographical places. He's been with Abraham from the time that he called him prior to him ever coming into the promised land. And if you look at verse 2, remember he's also being charged with blasphemy against God. His very first words following his address is his, his thought about God. This is the God of glory. This is the glorious God. There is no one else like this God. And for a Jew, for God to be called a God of glory may recall for them the thoughts of when God either came down in his glory on Mount Sinai or when he came down in glory upon the tabernacle or the temple and his Shekinah glory or his dwelling glory was there with his people. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So as Stephen speaks about the glorious God, the God of glory, he says that this God appeared to him, appeared to Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia prior to any of that. So what, what happens when you think about God? What do you say about God in your mind? What do you think about him? And when Stephen is on trial and he's defending his belief and his thinking about God and these charges have been given, his very first way to describe God is a God of glory, that he's unique, that no one else is like this God. It's important for us to remember, just as Stephen calls him the God of glory there on this occasion as he's defending himself, defending his statements and his belief in the truth, that we worship the same God. Moving into this defense of the faith, we could move into Abraham's life very quickly and we could move beyond the God of glory but it's actually the God of glory that's the focus here. It's the God of glory that's directing history. It's the God of glory who's present with his people wherever they are geographically. And our God is a holy God. He is a God to be worshipped. He's a God to be served. He's a God to be bowed before. He's a God to humble ourselves before, to submit ourselves to, to worship with our lives. The worship of God is not to be entered into casually. We are to guard our foot, Ecclesiastes says, when we go to the house of God so that we don't present a sacrifice of fools because of a thoughtlessness or a carelessness. Stephen Charnock said, when we consider the majesty of God clothed with a robe of light sitting on his high throne adorned with his royal ensigns, we should not enter into the presence of so great a majesty with a sacrifice of fools, with light motions and foolish thoughts as if he were one of our companions to be drolled with. 
We should not hear his word as if it were the voice of some ordinary peasant. The consideration of majesty would engender reverence in our service. It would also make us speak of God with honor and respect as of a great and glorious king and not to use defaming expressions of him as if he were an infamous being. How sinful it is to take God's name in vain. How wicked it is to think light of God. How sinful it is to come before God and to proclaim that we're worshiping God when in our hearts we are not in any way worshiping Him. Let us humble ourselves before the God of glory. This is the God that Stephen was worshiping. This is the God that he is proclaiming. Stephen connected the God of glory all the way back to the beginning of the nation as God appeared. We're not told exactly how, but that he appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. If you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we are told the nature of God's appearing. We're told what happened, what the person saw, what the person heard. But I want to I look at chapter 12, verse 1 here, and just note something. We're going to have to go back into chapter 11 a little bit as well, because in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he's leaving Haran. But what Stephen says in his speech is that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So in other words, chapter 12 and verse 1 is the communication that God had given to Abram, but that actually had taken place earlier than when he was in Haran. Why do I say that? Well, the verb in chapter 12, verse 1, could be translated, now the Lord had said to Abram. And I think it should be translated that way. The Lord had said, some translations take it that way. Because if he's in Haran in chapter 12, God appeared to him before that. So look back at verse 31 of chapter 11, and notice it says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Why did they go in the first place? Why did they root up their whole family and leave, and notice what it says, to in order to enter the land of Canaan? God had said something to Abram. And it was a whole family endeavor to start with. 
But over time, Tira dies. He dies in Haran, and they're going to leave Haran. So Stephen actually, as he introduces this defense, is he's carefully understood what Moses has written there in verse 31. By the way, this is partly how Stephen, I believe, demonstrates his respect for Moses. He wasn't blaspheming against Moses. He was holding the words of Moses very carefully. He was interpreting them very carefully. And as he defended himself before scribes and other very learned men, including Gamaliel within the Sanhedrin, he had to have his ducks in a row. Right? I mean, he's got a law teacher right in front of him who knew his stuff. And he is defending himself based upon a careful reading of the law. Where was Abram when God first appeared to him? Mesopotamia. Not in the land of Israel. The God of glory came to Abraham, not in the land of Israel, but in another place altogether. And then they made their way up the Euphrates River to Haran, and then they came down into the promised land. But God had revealed himself to someone who was in a pagan, idolatrous city long before the temple was even thought of. I think one of the points that you'll see throughout Stephen's speech is that God is not limited to a location. That same glorious God who came down and dwelt upon the tabernacle or in the tabernacle and temple by his his, uh, revealed presence, his Shekinah glory, could just as well appear elsewhere. And of course he does. So when we think about God and his appearing to Abraham in Mesopotamia, what Stephen is saying from the outset is God is not limited to this place. And it's demonstrated even in his relationship to Abraham. Look, if you would, back at Acts chapter 7. Verse 3, it says, And said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. That's north of Israel. From there, after his father died, that was Terah at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Okay, that's the land of Israel, the promised land. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Now, if we were to trace down, you might have a cross-reference there. You'd see that God, in his successive speaking to Abraham over time, as Abraham follows God by faith, obeys God, and goes to one place and then to the next, as God speaks to him, you're going from Genesis 11 and then 12 and then into verse 13 and then chapter 15 and then chapter 17. And what Stephen is doing is he's making a very compact history of God's promises to Abraham. And he's, of course, quoting scripture. Uh, The one there in verse 5, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. That comes from chapter 13. So 
Stephen, again, being very careful with the law, describing the history, giving reference to the statements of God, the promises of God. He's also, again, remember he's on trial because he's said to have spoken blasphemous words about God. Well, he's being very careful to note the promises of God and the history of God's working with his people. Verse 6, and down through verse 7, is a brief capturing of what God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, as he enters into covenant with Abraham. Notice in verse 6, it says, but God spoke to this effect, that his descendants, that is Abraham's descendants, would be aliens or foreigners in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Okay, the the, the reference in verse 7, the very end of the verse there, when he says, serve me in this place, tells you that he was speaking to Abraham in the promised land, But he was saying to Abraham that for 400 years, your descendants are going to be enslaved in another land. They're going to be mistreated in another land. And what land is that? That's, of course, Egypt. And while God was with Abraham now during this time making a covenant with him, there was a time yet coming in the future where his descendants, these ones who would then eventually possess the land, They're going to go into another land altogether, and God is going to work there, and he's going to be with them there. He's going to watch over them there to get them there, to get them back out of there. You really get the sense, as God is even relating these things to Abraham, that God has a purpose for everything that he's doing as he's moving people geographically, and that's a good sense, because God does purpose and plan for his people. And it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that God would say what he says there in verse 6, that this is part of his plan for his people, that they would go into a land and be mistreated there, and even enslaved there. A whole nation of people going through that in the plan and providence of God. That God would not only permit that, but plan that for the sake of his people. And all behind that is the gracious purpose of God to give Abram and his descendants this land. So don't miss the grace because of that reality of affliction that his people are going to go through. Because God is a gracious God, and he even has a plan for that affliction. That plan, in part, for the affliction, had to do with bringing glory to himself. Look at verse 7. It says, whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And when we think about God's judgment upon that land and upon its people, what do you think of? You think about a time when the nation that was enslaving and mistreating the Israelites was judged, what do you think of? you think of the plagues? Do you think of the Red Sea? 
Do you think of those 10 plagues that took place successively as Moses called upon the Lord? The Lord brought, whether it was frogs or lice or darkness or boils or whatever it might be, he brought all of those plagues, why? To really to judge the nation in part for its idolatry, but also to bring glory to himself that he is God of all the earth. This is part of what he was doing in the plagues and in the earth during this time, that his fame might be known throughout the world. And when he divided the Red Sea for the Israelites and let them walk across on dry land, not only did the Egyptians come to understand the significance of that, but the people in Canaan were afraid of this God. So yes, the God of glory, who is planning for his glory to be revealed and his people moving them from place to place. Yes, to preserve and protect them there in the land of Egypt, but eventually to bring them into the land to fulfill those promises. Now, we know it's not as simple as that because we have the whole story of Joseph that shows how they actually came into the land. Before we get there, let's just note in verses 8 and 9, or verse 8 rather, that God, in his relationship with Abraham gave him a sign of his covenant with him. It says in verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. This is a mark on the males within Abraham's household that would signify that they were connected to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And they were all in Abraham's household, even his slaves were to take that mark. And then Isaac was to have that when he was born. According to God's command, Abraham followed that command. And then following that, you you see the end of verse 8 as it describes Isaac becoming the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. That's the foundation of this nation. And you might ask the question, how much of it took place within the land of Israel? How much of that even took place in the promised land? Now, we know Jacob spent time in the promised land, but he also spent time outside the promised land. And when he's with Laban, and Laban is changing his wages and doing all these different things to kind of be adverse to Jacob, giving him Leah first instead of Rachel, then eventually Rachel, but changing his wages 10 times. You remember that Jacob during those same times is receiving revelation from God, where God comes to him and tells him, I've seen everything that Laban is doing to you. Genesis 31, he says, I've seen everything that Laban is doing to you, and I've blessed you in spite of it. So even Jacob outside of the land is interacting with the God who is, of course, the global God. God is not bound by any geography. And when it comes to his relationship to his covenant people, it's not that he only has to bless them there at Jerusalem and there at the temple. God has, throughout Israel's history, blessed his people and been with his people wherever they are. And that becomes very apparent in a very personal way with Joseph. And let's look at the story of Joseph briefly. Verse Nine, it says the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet, and here's, I think, one of the main themes here of Stephen's speech, God was with him. God was with him. In spite of the fact that he's in Egypt, in spite of the fact that he's been 
course, abused by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, eventually in Potiphar's house, and then he's only there for a time before he's falsely accused and cast into prison. But if you follow Genesis 37 and Genesis 39, you'll see that when he was in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. When he was in the prison, the Lord is with him, and God is blessing him in both of those places, far away from his family, certainly far away from the promised land. And notice that in verse 10, or verse 9, end of the verse, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions. And that's a precious truth as we think about the care of God. God, of course, even in Joseph's words, had planned this, what happened to him, even though his brothers meant it for evil, God had meant all of this for good. And Joseph is looking at that from mature reflection years later, and he's describing the time when he was mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, had hope for a release when one of the men that he interpreted a dream for was released. He hoped he might be released, but then he was seen to be forgotten in prison for more years, more prison time. Does God care? Is God even around? Does God know? And the answer is, of course, he cares. Of course, he knows. Notice what it says, verse 9. God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions. And it is important to remember and again, I'm, I'm saying there's some wonderful truths here for us to meditate on. Even though Stephen's on trial for his life and there's there are other issues, the truth that God is with his people wherever they are. He's, of course, omnipresent, but he cares for his own. He sees their afflictions and he rescues us. He's near to us. He's present with us. So what are you going through? What are you going through today? Are you going through something difficult, painful? My wife and I celebrated an anniversary this week. We were talking about some of the things that we've gone through in the last 28 years, by God's grace. Trials or challenges or difficulties. And as I reflected on the discussion that we had, I thought, obviously, there was no time in all of that time when the Lord was not with us. Or helping us. Songwriter says, We are never alone, for God is with us now, through all our days, always, forever and ever. We are never alone. You might think you're alone, you're not alone. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, the Lord Jesus said. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the psalmist says. You might think nobody knows, nobody cares. That's not true. God does know and God does care what you're going through. And as you cry out to him, you look for him, you look to him in faith. Of course he knows and he cares. 
He cares about the affliction, the pain, the difficulty. He did for Joseph. I'm not saying that every person's story is going to end up like Joseph. I'm just saying you have a God in heaven who loves his people, who is present with them, who, who knows their pains. He knows their affliction. He cares for you. Cast all your care upon him, Peter said, because he cares for you. Notice verse 10, rescued him from all his afflictions, not only that, but granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. So God had a plan, and of course it was to bring Joseph out at just the right time prior to the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine, the seven years of famine were then used to bring Jacob and the children of Israel into Egypt, and God protected the children of Israel as they came into Egypt as a very small family, and then they grew and multiplied there. What was God doing? He was bringing them under the shelter, you might say, of a powerful nation in a favorable way so that they could come in and be safe during that time as they multiplied before he was going to take them out again in a glorious way to draw attention to himself and fulfill his promises. What an amazing God. That's the description we're given here in verses 11 and following of that transition. Look at verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers couldn't find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And he's just giving a description of the fact that here you have the children of Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, moving down to a foreign land, Egypt. We're not forgetting about the promises of Abraham, or made to Abraham. We're just looking at God's working in time as he's caring for and watching over this people that are eventually going to populate this land. God works on much, so much of a different scale and in different ways than we would think, doesn't he? His purpose, yes, is to fulfill his promises, but as he does, he does it in a way that brings glory to himself and really rejoicing to his people and faith in him as he finally fulfills what he said he would do. And so what we're looking at here is his providence in the life of the nation to watch over them, to be with them, to protect them. And all of this is outside of the nation. I want you to look at verse 16, and we'll wrap this up, and we're going to spend more time on this chapter. There's just a, a lot here. Verse 16, it says, From there they were removed to Shechem, and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money for the sons of Hamor, from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So though they went down to Egypt, right? This is the nation because of famine in its infancy stage going down to Egypt. Here they are 
and there's some question about the numbers. I don't have time to go into, and we need to look at that uh, briefly because there are different passages that refer to different numbers. It depends on which text you're talking about that talks about the number, which verse in Scripture that talks about the number, which people are included. Um, Verse 14 says it's 75. There's a reason for that. Other passage says 66. Another passage says 70, so we'll consider that. But my point here is to consider the fact that, verse 16, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money for the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Why would people who are now living in Egypt bury their loved ones in a land far away? You might know someone like that who was buried in a place that they they didn't live there. In fact, you might argue based on the, the number of years in their life, they may have lived longer in Egypt than they lived elsewhere. Why are the patriarchs, and I think it's the patriarchs that are in view along with Joseph, why are they all buried up there in Shechem? What's the significance of Shechem? Well, for the people that Stephen's talking to, that's actually where the Samaritans lived. And the Samaritans were not really loved by the Jews. But that's where the patriarchs were buried. Why were they buried there? Why was Joseph eventually... Remember what happened to Joseph's bones? Joseph gave command concerning his bones, and his bones were kept and then taken out in the Exodus. So after he died, you've got Joseph's bones eventually taken out in the Exodus, and Joshua 24 records the burying of Joseph's bones in the inheritance of his children. Why did Joseph want that? Joseph was second in command in Egypt. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Why was Joseph buried there? Why were the patriarchs buried there? Why was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob buried in that land? It's by faith. Look at verse 13, all these died in faith without having received the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones to be buried in the land of promise. The land of promise. It was faith. Faith in the promises of God. 
in a foreign land, God was with them, but he had promised to give them that land. And that faith exhibited itself. And that's where our burial is going to be. I think you could say by faith, that's where the resurrection is going to be. But that's where their descendants are eventually going to be. As they trusted that this same God of glory who made the promises would keep those promises to them. No matter where they were, no matter where they are. God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who is with his people, cares about his people. God is not limited to a particular place. There's no place where you can go in the service of the Lord where he will not be with you to help you, to bless you, to see your affliction, to care for you. And I could be talking to someone today, and you might think God's forgotten you, that God doesn't care about you, that nobody's paying attention to you. Don't, don't forget there's a God in heaven who sees those who have faith in him. He watches over them. Even if they're on the island of Tana, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from anybody that knows or loves them, and they're trying to preach the gospel as John Payton was, and his wife died, and his child dies, and he has to bury them, and he's by that lonely grave. This island way off in the Pacific, you might think based upon his circumstance that he's been forgotten, and God isn't there, and God doesn't care about him. But here's what he said in those times. He said, I built the grave round with coral blocks, covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small as gravel. And that spot became my sacred and much frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of these islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whenever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. He was living a life of faith in God and hope in God. And then he says, but for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. God is completely aware of your circumstances. Completely aware. In fact, you might have people who care about you, but he cares for you more than anyone else. And I would ask you certainly to place your faith in him, to keep on trusting him if you know him. But if you don't know him, turn to him. There is no friend like Jesus. And he'll be with you. John Flavel says, what an honor it is to you, poor wretch, to whom a great many would not turn aside to ask how you do. To have a king, yea, the prince of all the kings of the earth, to pity, relieve, sympathize, groan, and bleed with you, to sit by you in all your troubles and give you his cordials. Say your troubles are my troubles and your afflictions are my afflictions. Whatever touches you touches me also. And he says, oh, what name shall we give unto such a grace as this, that we would have such a good and gracious God to be with us? Let's look to the Lord in prayer.
Lord, I don't know all the application you would make, but I trust that the truth of your presence with your people, wherever they may be, we're on a different continent thousands of years later than these circumstances, but we know that you're the same unchanging God. And we look to you today. We trust in you today. We have, as we heard sung this morning, we have hope in you today. That you care about our afflictions, that you minister to us in our need. And even while this man is standing up and defending himself, about to face their stones hurled at him, even in those moments, Lord, you gave him a sight that he was not alone. All he had to do was look up into the heavens and see the Son of Man standing and know that your attention was on him. And we praise you, Lord. And we ask that you'd help us to believe in your gracious presence, your love for us, even when we're in affliction. We ask, Lord, for your help, no matter what we're going through, to keep our eyes up, looking up to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.